And I hope that governments, once they get elected, as governments always have, obviously they do their, their best to implement their election commitments, but they also, inevitably, faced with events, faced with developments, faced with thinking about things, as they are in office, come up with things and indeed implement them uh, without necessarily waiting for the next election mm. uh, before they get on with it. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today I'm joined by the Grattan CEO, John Daly, to discuss the policy implications of the Morrison miracle, otherwise known as the 2019 federal election. John, welcome. Thank you. Well, what happened? Is this a case of voters rejecting a big, bold policy agenda and instead voting for self-interest? It is a case of voters rejecting a big, bold agenda. I think it's less about their self-interest. How so? So the interesting patterns that we and others have been identifying is that the electorates that swung to the coalition were typically those that were lower income, uh, typically those that had lower levels of education. Uh, in terms of age, no particular pattern. So it's just not obvious that old electorates voted, you know, swung towards the coalition. Mm. Uh, so those who say, look, this was all about the voters saying no to... Um, uh, the ALP's changes to negative gearing, capital gains tax, franking credits, the evidence for that's pretty poor. The electorates most affected by those things, in fact, if anything, swung more to the ALP. On the other hand, when you are trying to explain why is it that an electorate, that, that electorates with people on lower incomes, lower education, voted or swung at least, towards the coalition. I think mm -hmm. the most plausible explanation is they were afraid. Yes. They were afraid that um, uh, their economic circumstances might take a turn for the worse. By definition, those with lower levels of education are those who are most vulnerable uh, if they lose their jobs. Mm. And their view was that they would rather stick with a government that they knew and that, frankly, wasn't proposing to change very much rather than go uh, for a, um, an ALP government, uh, which on any view of the world was proposing to change a very large number of things. Okay, so if they were afraid, as you say, does that uh, tend towards the interpretation that voters today prefer a small target option because they're tired, they're wary of further policy change? I think it does suggest that they don't want a really big target. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it you should not necessarily assume from this result that voters want absolutely no change at all. Mm -hmm. um, even the Morrison government was proposing some changes. Mm -hmm. But I think you can perhaps take from it that your agenda can be too large. Uh, and of course, one of the things we've been interested in at Grattan Institute for a very long time is prioritising. Um, fundamentally, uh, there's only so much that any government or for that matter company or individual can get done at once. And therefore, it's really important to make quite conscious decisions about what am I going to choose to do and implicitly what am I going to choose 
not to do. Uh, and I think you know one of the things that perhaps you would take out of this is that the ALP might have done better if it had simply proposed less, not nothing, but less. But proposing less on a policy uh, framework, does that make life harder for an independent think tank like Grattan, which exists to advocate for better public policy? Well, if we were simply a pro- uh, taking a machine gun approach, uh, then I think that's fair. Uh, and you could certainly read our Commonwealth Orange book, which contained any number of ideas about what you could do to make the country a better place. Um, as a machine gun. Uh, On the other hand, that publication was also very specific about how you might think about prioritising, what were the kind of um, criteria you could apply. Uh, We essentially said you should go first after the things that are big and which are most doable because the the uh, consensus of experts is higher because the public doesn't intuitively hate them and so on. Mm. Um, uh, And we also applied that framework and said, look, if you really asked us to choose, here's the kind of dozen things we'd put on the top of the list and implicitly everything else we'd say, look, nice idea, but don't do it first. So, John, we did that before the election, as you say, and, through yep. the Commonwealth Orange Book. The election's been had, the votes are in, the Morrison government has been returned. So let's prioritise. What sort of priorities should or might the Morrison government pursue? Well, of course, we also now have to apply a, a political realism overlay. Indeed. Um, even if many in the Morrison government thought that changing the rules on negative gearing and capital gains tax was a very good idea, and indeed many of them are in fact on the record as saying so, mm. uh, although to be fair, quite a while ago, mm. um, it is very unlikely that they are going to pursue that reform, however good that reform might be, uh, certainly in direct format. Um, so we have to apply a political realism Uh, overlay to this. Uh, But on the other hand, I think um, we also have to um, apply an overlay that this is a government that um, went to the election saying there won't be that much change. Indeed. uh, And therefore, that's probably going to be their instinct. And therefore, um, if anything, you should prioritise even more tightly. Uh, And as well as looking for things that are big and things that are doable and things that they haven't explicitly and very at length ruled out in the last election campaign, um, you probably also want to prioritise the things where external circumstances mean that you are going to run out of choices. And I think that that is probably going to drive the uh, priorities for this government over the next couple of years. And I think there's a couple... External choices, external external circumstances. As as, uh, that that very famous phrase goes, events, dear boy, events, (laughs) is what uh, often drives governments to make decisions. You may be thinking about the economy, John, at this stage. Indeed. So I think the first thing that they're going to have to confront is the fact that economic growth has become a lot slower over the last six months. Indeed, the economy... The size of the economy per person actually shrank in the September to December 2018 um, quarter. Uh, And I don't think anyone is claiming that the January to March quarter has been particularly quick. Mm. Um, We will find out um, uh, over the next couple of weeks as the numbers come in. Mm. But uh, I don't think anyone is uh, suggesting that, in fact, the economy has suddenly turned a corner. In fact, the Reserve Bank has been busy issuing forecasts saying that they think everything is slowing down. So uh, 
Faced with a slowing economy, what can the government do? Now, one thing it can do is a bunch of tax cuts, uh, and of course they promised to do that. Yes. And in the short run, that will probably help. But the kind of tax cuts that they are proposing are unlikely to make much difference in the medium run. You get a kind of sugar hit from the tax cut as the money kind of comes through the economy, it's a, but it's a one-off effect. Um, even if you essentially leave taxes at exactly that level for the next 12 months, you don't get the same economic growth spurt you do at the precise point that you cut taxes. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have to look at other things. Um, we think that they could do a lot worse than have a look at the childcare subsidies um, plan that the ALP put up. Uh, so to effectively increase how much of the cost of childcare is subsidised. How does that help the economy? So what it does is that at the moment, there's a lot of uh, second income earners, so by and large that's women, um, who are working three or four days a week. And the reason they're not working four or five days a week is not because they don't want to. It's not because their employer doesn't want them to. It's because they've done the um, economics. They might have, have, might have a spreadsheet. They might have just been looking at their bank balance. They might have just figured it out. And they figured out that if they work an extra day, they will take very, very little home. Right. Uh, so the combination of paying tax on the extra income, plus the more you earn, the less family tax benefit you get, plus, of course, you're going to have to pay for childcare for that extra day, plus the more you earn, the less childcare benefit you get across all of the childcare you are already using. The combination of those things means that for many women, they will take home five, ten cents in the dollar of what an employer pays them if they work an extra day. And so funnily enough, they decide not to. Um, The ALP's policy, not a comprehensive solution to this, but it would mean that for a lot of women, they'd take home about 11 or 12 cents in the dollar more than Mm -hmm. they're taking home at the moment, bearing in mind at the moment they're taking home very, very little. Uh, And that would be very much in the right direction. We do know that women in this situation are actually very sensitive to to, to what we call effective marginal tax rates. In other words, if you change those rules... Quite a lot of people make a different decision about how much to work. If more people do more work, then the economy is larger and there's more resources to go around. So that's why that's a reform that would help the economy. Okay, but there are other um, dark clouds on, on the economic horizon. However, John, this government has outlined budget surpluses for the next four years and beyond. Can we take comfort from that? Well, those budget surpluses um, assume two things. One is they assume a relatively benign economy. Doesn't look much like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And secondly, they assume um, quite significant cost restraint, particularly in years three and four in the budget, without actually outlining any specific um, reductions in costs that would achieve that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that makes us pretty nervous that those budgets' um, outcomes may not be achieved. So what can they do about this? One of the things that they might be attracted to, particularly in a world where economic growth is very slow, is rethinking the increase in the super guarantee. So at the moment, you pay 9.5% of your wage um, into super, compulsory. Um, That is scheduled to go up to 12% over the next couple of years. Um, Now, the best evidence is that when the super guarantee goes up, the impact of that will be that wages will go, go up by less than they would otherwise. Right. And of course, in an economy that's pretty slow, that means that by definition, wages are probably not going to up, go up by very much. And if you depress them even further because of increases to the super guarantee, you can assume that a number of people are going to be not be very happy about that. So 
Firstly, delaying the super guarantee is something you might want to do because your economy is slowing. Secondly, you might do it because it actually helps the budget. Although lots of people think that super helps the budget, uh, it's going to take a really long time for that to work. So on the current, the most recent projections um, that have been produced by Treasury, admittedly it was a while ago, it would be helpful if they were updated, um, they suggested that the amount uh, that the Commonwealth government is losing uh, in terms of tax concessions is larger than the amount it is saving in terms of reduced age pensions. And that will continue to be the case until about 2060. Now, I'm all in favour of long-term policy, but it's a really long time to wait. Mm. Uh, and, of course, by then we will have the better part of 70 years of accumulated budget losses to pay off. So by about 2100, the entire scheme from a budgetary perspective will have paid off. But what that does illustrate is that delaying the super guarantee does at least provide a material boost to the budget bottom line. Okay. The other thing that we can see being plausible is that they could have a long, hard look at aged care. The costs of aged care are going up very quickly. At the moment, we recover some of the costs of aged care from the individuals that are helped and who can afford it, but not that much. Mm-hmm. And in particular, we have this somewhat odd system that says, if you really have nothing, we don't recover any of the costs from you. If you've got something, we recover some costs. Yes. And if you've got a lot we still only recover some costs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is certainly scope to look at those who frankly have quite a lot of resources and say, well, government's helping you a lot with particularly aged care in your home and government is entitled to recover a bit more of that from you than it does at the moment. And particularly by definition, we're talking um, about people who, um, they don't need to keep saving for a rainy day. The rainy day has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people say, well, I need to save for my old age so mm. to pay for my aged care, which the answer is, that's dead right. Uh, and at the point that um, you are using those aged care services, you know, that's when the money could potentially be spent. Okay, John, I want to touch on a few other portfolio areas very briefly, if I could. Firstly, health. Grattan's done some important recent work suggesting that private health insurance in Australia is in something of a death spiral. Why yes. is that and what should be done about that? Uh, and and uh, needless to say, many get nervous when you use the words death spiral. But, <laughs> but, but the fundamental problem is this. The amount that private health insurers are spending on a, say, 65-year-old is going up. Indeed. So the problem is not so much that there are lots more 65-year-olds, although I'll come back to that issue. The problem mm-hmm. is the amount that they spend on a 65-year-old is a lot more than they used to spend on a 65-year-old even just 10 years ago. Uh, and that's across all areas of expenditure. It's about how much the um, uh, 70-year-olds, say, spend on um, uh, hospital costs, how much they spend getting new prostheses, artificial hips and knees and all the rest of it, and how much uh, is spent on on medical benefits, on paying the doctor uh, or the specialist. So all of those things are going up very fast. Of course, we've always spent a lot more money on 70-year-olds than than 30-year-olds. That's not news. But the gap is getting bigger because although we're spending a little bit more on 30-year-olds than we used to, that it hasn't gone up by very much. Mm-hmm. This is per person. But for 70-year-olds, it's gone up a lot. Now, One of the consequences of that is for 30-year-olds, the gap between the premium they pay and the benefits they take out is getting larger because they're kind of getting the same benefits that they used to, but the premiums have gone up to pay for all these 70-year-olds. 
And so what is happening is that an increasing number of 20 to 39-year-olds are dropping out of private health insurance. On the other hand, the number of 70-year-olds with private health insurance, or the proportion of them, is staying the same. Mm. So essentially what's happening is that all of the people, younger people in the system who have, uh, who essentially um, subsidise the rest of the system, in other words, they take out less in claims than they put in in premiums, um, a substantial number of them are dropping out of the system. Now, of course, that's very ugly for a private health insurer because what it means uh, is that... All of the expensive people are staying there. All of the relatively inexpensive people are dropping out of the system. And that means in order to make your numbers add up, you've got to push premiums up even faster. Uh, And of course, then that just makes it even less attractive for 30 to 35-year-olds. And so they drop out even faster. Sounds like a death spiral. Uh, That's what they call a death spiral. and And it's not a very beautiful story. So it's a big problem. Is it insoluble? Well, the reason we have this problem fundamentally is that government is trying to run a subsidy from young to old, Mm. not through the tax system, but through a voluntary product. Now, of course, our Medicare system is effectively a subsidy system from young to old. Young people pay quite a lot of taxes. Mm. Old people pay very little taxes. We would argue too few taxes, but that's a discussion to have another time. Um, and But nevertheless, they use a lot more health services. And so in effect, we use the tax system and the health system to so that younger people effectively pay for the um, health costs of old people. And they hope that no doubt when they become old, that those young people today will have the same benefits themselves. Mm. That's fine. And of course, young people can't opt out of that. They have to pay tax. But we've also been trying to do the same thing through the private health system, through what's known as community rating, which says the private health insurer has to charge you the same premium, no matter what your age, despite the fact that they know that if you are a 70-year-old, that you are going to cost them a lot more than a 30-year-old. Now, when the difference between the payouts to 30-year-olds and 70-year-olds was not huge, you could kind of live with that problem. But as that gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, uh, private health insurance is becoming less and less attractive for 30-year-olds. They look at it and go, you know, I'm better off self-insuring. Mm. I'm better off just not paying the premium, putting the money in the bank. If I happen to have to go to hospital that year, um, A, I might well go to a public hospital and you know, many people think that they're a lot better than they used to be, and they're right about that. Um, and also, even if I went to a private health, um, uh, to a private hospital, it's not going to cost me any more than the premium. In addition, out-of-pocket costs are going up very yes. fast, and the, by definition, the insurer doesn't pay for those. And you know what? Even in any one year, I'm probably not going to pay out any more than my premium even if I go to hospital, and there's going to be lots of years when I don't go to hospital. Mm, it's quite a rational quite a rational cu- calculation it's by com- younger people. It's completely rational. That's the problem. Mm. <laughs> now, so what do you do about that? You can think about whether maybe you change the rules around community rating, maybe you provide even more subsidy to the system. Not mm-hmm. entirely sure that's the right answer, but mm-hmm. it's an option. Maybe you provide an even bigger stick to compel... 30-year-olds to take out private health insurance. In effect, that looks like a tax rise. I'm not sure how well that's going to go down. (laughs) Um, So those are the choices the government's got. I think, to be honest, all of those are unattractive choices, but this is a problem that they are going to struggle to run away from uh, because uh, 
if they do nothing, then essentially all that's going to happen is that private health insurance premium is going to go up really fast. Um, and essentially both young and old people, particularly old people, will be very upset about that. Let's move to another problem area, higher education, John, particularly the university sector. Now, Andrew Norton, our Grattan's Higher Education Program Director, has suggested that current policy is not going to cut it into the future with regard to universities. That's right. So we have had what we call the demand-driven system, where effectively the Commonwealth Government paid for as many places as the universities wanted to offer. Um, And over the last decade, because historically there'd been a lot of unmet demand, um, essentially universities have expanded to meet that demand. And we've now more or less reached saturation point. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the Senate refused to pass the government's changes or some of the government's changes to the HELP scheme, um, the government said, well, in that case, we can't afford to um, uh, keep running the universities the way we are, and therefore we are going to cap the number of places that we are prepared to pay for. Uh, And that was the trade-off. Now, last year, this year, that didn't matter very much because the number of school leavers didn't change. So the fact that the number of university places didn't change didn't matter very much. And indeed, that'll continue to be the case for the next year or two until, (laughs) until in about 2021-22, the number of school leavers in Australia will increase and will start to increase very quickly. So at the moment, there's about 305,000 school leavers every year. Uh, By 2026, that will have gone up to about 350,000 school leavers. It's a baby boom bubble working its way through. It's the the so-called mini baby boom. So what happened um, about uh, 20 years ago Mm -hmm. was that there was a cohort of women who used to all have their first child at 27, and that that used to be the case. And and about 20 years ago, a lot of women started saying, you know, I'm not going to have my first child at 27. I'm going to have my first child at about 32. The implication of that was that it depressed the birth rate mm-hmm. um, uh, for quite a number of years, for the better part of a decade. And then, as all of those women got older and they turned 32, it effectively increased mm. the birth rate quite quickly. That cohort has been working its way through schools. Mm. Uh, it's now in early secondary school. Uh, and by about 2022, they'll all be finishing school. Right. And they'll all be looking for a university place. So that's why we say government's going to need to do something to respond to the fact that there will suddenly be quite a lot more people looking for a university place. Uh, We think that the demand-driven system was way better than anything else we can come up with. If the the quid pro quo for restoring the demand-driven system is that we also recover a bit more of the cost of higher education from students, well, that strikes us as a pretty good trade-off. Let me ask about housing, John. Not not entirely a Commonwealth responsibility, but partly so. Uh, let me ask you this. Is, is the housing affordability crisis in Australia over now because prices are falling in Sydney and Melbourne? So I think in the housing market, you've got to distinguish between two things. There's a very good Reserve Bank paper published on this a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. which basically said there are fundamentally two cycles in the housing market. The first one is a really long-term cycle. It's driven by three things. Interest rates. If interest rates fall, then house prices go up. And obviously, the same in reverse. Mm -hmm. Um, If demand goes up, uh, then prices go up. If supply goes up, then prices go down. And the long-run price of houses uh, and apartments is the consequence of 
all those things put together. Mm-hmm. And we have been in a world since about 2006 in which, roughly speaking, demand went up really fast uh, because we had a very rapid um, number of migrants moving to Australia. Um, supply didn't move that fast, and consequently, um, we wound up where we are, as illustrated in the Orange Book, um, with relatively um, few homes per person. Mm-hmm compared to the sort of countries that we like to compare ourselves into, and therefore, not surprisingly, the price of housing in Australia, compared to incomes, relatively expensive. Now, that's the long run. And ironically, government can do that, although it's not so much a federal government problem. If you change the planning rules, then in the long run, you will wind up with more housing. uh, And effectively, what that will mean is that prices will be lower than they would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's what the long run looks like. Mm -hmm. Then in the short run, you have a cycle which is very um, sentiment driven. If prices are going up, um, people tend to crowd into the housing market, prices go up further, developers get excited, they build lots more stuff. And that cycle can keep going for quite a while until it turns. And then what happens is that prices start going down, people get nervous, so they move out of the housing Mm. market, so prices go down even further. Uh, Developers stop building houses. Um, And that's the short run cycle. And of course, if you want to know the price of housing tomorrow, the answer will be the sum of that really long run cycle plus that really short run cycle. Uh, Of course, at the moment, um, the long run cycle is not enough housing to go around relative to lots of other countries. Um, But the short run cycle is one in which prices are falling. Mm. Um, Mm. Now, governments, of course, don't have much influence at all over that short run cycle. The Reserve Bank has some influence in terms of its ability to cut interest rates, and certainly the markets are pricing in uh, an interest rate cut. Although my guess is that Although that, of course, has an effect long term in the short term, I'm not sure it's going to really change sentiment that much. It's quite hard to turn around this kind of boom-bust cycle sentiment um, particularly quickly. So um, that's the kind of long-run game for housing. And, of course, in many ways, not much of that's got to do with the Commonwealth government. State uh, planning is primarily a state responsibility, although... If the Commonwealth wants to make its city deals program genuinely useful, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to using it to fund a very large stadium in Townsville, <laughs> um, then one of the things it could do is go to state governments and local governments and say, we, the Commonwealth government, are prepared to pay for this bit of transport infrastructure to upgrade the local library, to improve the local park, to pay for the ma- additional maintenance to make the local park a really nice place on an annual, on an ongoing basis. If you, the local council, agree that we are going to increase um, the number of um, medium density dwellings in this area, um, that would be a very good deal in terms of housing affordability over the medium run. No doubt there's still going to be some local residents that will be upset, but the deal will hopefully at least mean that they would be less upset than they would be otherwise. And of course, the winners would be all of the people who at the moment can't afford to buy a home or who at the moment are paying Um, rent that's a very large proportion of their salary because one of the effects of building a lot more housing is not just that the prices come down, but also that rents come down. So that's what the Commonwealth government could really do. Mm. The other thing it might want to think about if if it really gets a very nasty economic crunch, and and who knows, the bottom line is the numbers are heading in the wrong direction, but quite how far down they go for how long, nobody knows at the moment. uh, if you get a really nasty housing uh, um, economic crunch, one mm-hmm. of the things we learnt out of the global financial crisis was that 
the Commonwealth Government's program uh, known as the Social Housing Initiative, where it basically um, gave quite a lot of money to the states to go and build a whole bunch of public housing, yes. turned out to be one of the things that was rather more effective in terms of uh, providing short-term stimulus to the economy than most of the alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the things the Commonwealth Government should probably think about doing is at least queuing that program up Talking to the states about, well, if we were in a down, downturn and if we did give you a lot of money, yeah. you know, like what projects have you got that are, as the saying goes, shovel ready? Yeah. Uh, and um, getting that insurance policy in place. That's not saying that they will spend all of that money, but if you are going to spend a lot of money to stimulate the economy in the middle of a, an economic crisis, it'll be a good idea to have all of that in place. John, let me ask you about energy policy, an area of notorious difficulty for both sides of politics over the last decade or so. What can or should we expect or hope for from the re-elected Morrison government with regard to climate change and where are electricity prices going? So in a completely ideal world, a Morrison government would implement something that looked very like the National Energy Guarantee that they spent so long designing. I was going to say, that used to be their policy. Indeed, it was their policy. Uh, um, and look, it's it's remotely possible that given um, uh, a bit more of a majority in Parliament uh, with one um, member of Parliament who very publicly said that he was prepared to cross the floor to vote against the government on that legislation no longer in the parliament. <laughs> indeed. And indeed replaced by a local member whom presumably would be very much in favour of that kind of legislation. She indeed. certainly said she would be uh, in Zali Stegall. Um, uh, they might be tempted. But <laughs> I think the reality is uh, Scott Morrison is probably looking at the fact that five prime ministers before him have all essentially come to grief on energy policy. Uh, and he might well just decide to, frankly, do nothing and uh, hope the problem goes away. Now, the problem is not going to go away. Uh, and if they fund a coal-fired power station, that'll probably make the problem even worse. Um, I And, of course, if they do that, then that creates an electoral backlash, not everywhere, but in some places. Yes. So I wouldn't be surprised if the um, political response was of masterful inactivity. <laughs> Uh, because kind of doing anything is going to get at least some of their supporters and indeed some of their members very upset. Uh, and uh, therefore, the path of least resistance to do nothing. Now, that does create an interesting option. Um, and that is for the state governments to implement the National Energy Guarantee. Yes. One of the things that very few people realise is that energy or more to point electricity policy in Australia is largely governed not by Commonwealth legislation but by South Australian legislation which is then picked up by the other state governments. Hmm. So if the state governments between them collectively decided that they wanted to implement the National Energy Guarantee uh, and that they were going to impose a reliability obligation, impose a emissions obligation as part of the electricity regime that operates through the national energy market, even if the Commonwealth government wanted to stop them, legally it probably can't. Mm. And of course, politically, it might not want to. Politically, it might decide, look, we know perfectly well that something's got to happen here. It's quite convenient for us not to have our hands being coloured by this um, exercise. Mm-hmm. So we're happy to leave it to the states. And before you say, well, that's completely implausible, there are two 
Liberal government, coalition government states, it's worth remembering that the New South Wales coalition government has a department for climate change. That does somewhat suggest where mm-hmm. they're coming from on this one. Uh, and so I think that there is a very good chance that um, in faced by masterful inactivity from the Commonwealth government, the state governments may simply decide that they're going to agree to change the rules they're going to agree that South Australia will pass the requisite legislation and then they will effectively pick up that legislation themselves and effectively cut the Commonwealth out of that particular loop. And that's a bit messy, um, but it's not that messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would certainly leave us with better policy in place, both in terms of reliability, in terms of certainty that enables um, more generation to be built, which in the long run um, helps bring prices down and reduce our emissions. Um, it may not be the perfect outcome, but it's certainly better than where we are at the moment. Okay, so let's step back as you sum up for us, John. What would you say to people who think the 2019 federal election was a watershed in Australian politics because it spells the end of serious policy reform? So my guess is that it, for at least a long time, spells the end of very, very large-scale policy reform all at once from opposition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, on any view of the world, the ALP was taking um, an awful lot of policies to the last election. So I'd be surprised if we saw anyone do that again. I hope that we will nevertheless, for the good of the country, see both sides of politics take substantial policies Mm -hmm. to the next election, although Mm -hmm. I hope they will be disciplined about prioritising those. And I hope that governments, once they get elected, as governments always have, obviously they do their their best to implement their election commitments, but they also, inevitably, faced with events, faced with developments, faced with thinking about things, as they are in office, come up with things and indeed implement them uh, without necessarily waiting for the next election Mm. uh, before they get on with it. So... Um, I hope that this is not the end of uh, good policy reform in Australia. Uh, We are certainly um, going to continue to promote good policy reform. And indeed, we expect that a Morrison government will introduce and implement a number of good policy reforms over the next three years. uh, And we will certainly be working to encourage them to do so. Thanks, John. Thanks for your explanations and for that hopeful message. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read any of Grattan Institute's reports going back 10 years or any of our articles analysing the 2019 election, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. And you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at Grattan Inst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.